0: Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
1: My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a Ph.D. holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the Revolution to fractious Civil War, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War episode 112. As always, this episode is brought to you by the fine people who support this podcast over on Patreon at patreon.com historyofthegreatwar by supporting this podcast, you get access to special Patreon-only episodes, like those that we did a few months ago on the development of the tank. These are true deep dives into various topics for those who want to know more about some of the things we just touch on during the main episodes. So head on over to patreon.com slash War to check it out. This is our second episode on the Romanian campaign. Last episode, we looked at the run-up to the war and the terms under which Romania entered on the side of the Entente. Today, we will talk about what Romania planned to do with the army that it had mobilized by discussing their war plan, their mobilization procedures, and their attack into Hungary through the Transylvanian Alps. This adventure would initially go quite well. The morale of the Romanian troops would be at an all-time high and the fact that they outnumbered the Austrian defenders by a good 10-1 to was also an important factor. When this first attack was launched, the German and Austrian response had not yet come into play, and that that response will be the topic for the second half of our episode. During that half, we will discuss the German reaction to the entry of Romania, and then what they plan to do to counteract the Romanian attack. Romania had some problems when it came to being in a war against both Austria-Hungary and Bulgaria. Here is Norman Stone from the Eastern Front to explain. Quote, Romania was virtually indefensible. The richest part of the country, Wallachia, jutted out in a long tongue between Hungary and Bulgaria – Neither the Carpathians, traversed by many passes, nor the Danube offered real obstacles to an invasion, yet the Romanians could not simply abandon Wallachia, since this would mean loss of their capital. Their army could be easily split up between different functions, each of them difficult to discharge, and the Romanian high command complicated this problem still more by failing to give constant priorities to the various strategical tasks. Half of the army was switched bewilderingly between one front and the other. Romania's intervention could only matter if the initial offensive against Hungary won an immediate success. End quote. The problems had their roots in geography. The Romanian front would be twice the length of the French front and barely shorter than what Russia was working with for an army that was not even a million strong, just defending it would have been difficult. Although the one benefit to the defenders was that a good amount of the border was on the Carpathian Mountains, meaning that the passes were all that had to be defended, then the rest of it was on the Danube, again, a good natural border to defend if you had enough troops. However, the Romanians would not be defending. Due to both public opinion and alliance commitments, they had to attack, and instead of just one attack on one front, say into Transylvania, they were hoping to do so on both. This was all outlined in a war plan that was called Hypothesis Z, which was distributed to the various Romanian commanders in early August. In general, the plan would have three armies, the first, second, and north, marching into Transylvania through the mountains. This represented roughly 370,000 men, and was the bulk of Romania's mobilized frontline strength. In the south, the third army would then attack on the Dobruja region and into Bulgaria, The southern army was considered secondary, and as such, it would be much worse supplied. In general, its goal was to keep Bulgarian troops out of Romanian territory. This plan, with two different attacks, would have been difficult for any army at this time to try and pull off, and the Romanians did not have the most efficient army. There was no consideration given in the plan for how the armies might be slowed, or what the enemy might do when the war started. Because of this lack of contingency planning, when things did begin to go wrong, there was a frantic mishandling of the situation. There was also a core assumption that there would be a tangible amount of assistance from the Russians, both to the north in Bukovina and to the south against Bulgaria. However, there were no details as to how this was going to work. One thing that did go relatively smoothly was mobilization. Before the war was even declared, there had been large forces moved to the frontier as covering forces. All these combined numbered about 200,000. This was about a third of the men who would be on the front after mobilization, but it made for even faster timelines after war was declared, since they did not have to be transported. There would have been a need to shuffle some of these units around, since they were not always in exactly the right place to meet up with other units that they were supposed to be working with. However, to prevent this, everybody was just told that the units on the frontier should just jump in with with whatever divisions were moving through their area. This greatly reduced the amount of units that had to be shuffled around. But it also meant that divisions were joined by units that they'd never interacted with. Often commanders would not even know their own order of battle before they went, before they were at the border and ready to begin their advance. Some did not even learn of their command at all until 48 hours before the war was joined. Then they did not know precisely which part of the plan they would play until just a few hours before it was supposed to begin. This lack of information was all done to keep the plan secret, and this part of the plan worked perfectly. There would be almost universal surprise among the Austrian units that were being attacked. However, there was a downside to these measures. It completely neutered the general's ability to plan and coordinate their attack. This might have been an acceptable compromise, if there was a very skilled general staff that was truly great at coordinating and assisting everybody, but this was just not the case. What would become apparent was that most of the general staff were incapable of managing the situation in front of them under the best of conditions, and these were not going to be the best of conditions. Regardless of what issues were in the future, during this episode we're going to focus on the attack in the north and into Transylvania. This was done by the North Army, Second Army, and First Army, in that order from north to south. Before we get started here, I highly recommend that everybody seek out a map of Romania in 1916 before we go any further. I've put a link to one in the show notes. This is because while modern-day Romania is reasonably circular, just a big blob between the Dnister and the Danube rivers and the Black Sea, this was not the case in 1916. At that point in history, it was made up of Wallachia, Moldovia, and parts of Dobruja. This meant that the country was shaped like a foot. Having a mental picture is going to be critical to understanding why the three armies to be discussed today behaved in the ways that they did. The Northern Army had three and a half infantry and one and a half cavalry divisions, and I guess I should mention that it was technically called the 4th Army, but it was the furthest north, and I'd like to call it that instead. Its actions would begin on the same night that the war was declared, when pre-positioned units seized control of the extremely critical passes through the mountains. These attacks gave the rest of the army time and space to concentrate, while also not giving the Austrians time to properly man the passes, which was the greatest concern. The next set of attacks would be launched after 10 days, and during these attacks, units would advance all the way onto the Hungarian plain. The defending Austrians were not only heavily outnumbered, with just one division in place which only had about 6,000 men, they were also in the theater to rest and recuperate. They had been heavily mauled in, on the Galatian front by the Russians, and were using the time manning the Romanian border to, rust and absorb, to rest and absorb reinforcements. After the North Army had reached the Hungarian plain, they stopped. The second pause would last for seven days, as they got everything set up and ready for the second stage of the attack. During this time, the Germans and Austrians had time to think about what their response would be, and it would be at this moment that Ludendorff decided that the First and Second Armies, who attacks we will cover shortly, were more concerning, so he directed reinforcements into that area instead of against the North Army. This choice allowed the second phase of the attack to meet success in the north, and they quickly advanced an average of 60 kilometers into Hungarian territory, which allowed them to both capture more territory but also greatly shorten their lines. On September 11th, the attack stopped, and the troops were told to dig in and fortify their positions with multiple lines of defense. Part of the reason that they had to stop was because an attack was supposed to be taking place by the Russian armies to the north, but this was not happening. This meant that if the Romanians continued their advance, their right flank would be up in the air and painfully vulnerable to German counterattack. Because of this, they stopped, which is unfortunate, because it allowed the Austrians to catch their breath and start bolstering their line to prevent further advances, even if the Romanians had wanted to, which they won't end up doing. The 2nd Army had four infantry and one cavalry division, which it had positioned on a massive 230-kilometer front. If we go back to our mental image of a foot, this army was positioned on the ankle of the foot. Therefore, once it got through the mountain passes, the front of the 2nd Army would begin to decrease rapidly. Just like the North Army, it quickly sent units through the passes as soon as war was declared, at which point it paused briefly before continuing on its way. Instead of offering any resistance, the Austrian commander in this area decided to withdraw behind the old River, and this meant that the Romanians reached the river without experiencing much resistance. After reaching the river, they continued their advance across it, continuing their advance for three days before a critical choice was made on the 18th. With the attack in Transylvania going so well, the Romanian high command made the decision to transfer troops to the southern front. This meant that the second army would lose half of its strength with its 22nd and 21st divisions being sent south. The troops that were left behind fortified their positions and tried to connect with the northern army and the first army. The advance of the 20, the adventure of the 22nd and 21st division will continue next episode, though it will be part of the troops that will spend more time during the first few weeks of the war in transit rather than in fighting. Overall, the Second Army had penetrated 70 to 100 kilometers into Transylvania, and had drastically reduced the length of the front in the process.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
2: Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The final army was the First Army, and it would be attacking from western Wallachia and advancing almost straight north. It was split into three different groups, which would follow three different passes through the mountains, which were named after the rivers that flowed through them. From west to east, these were the Cerna, the Jiu, and the Olt. In the west, the Cerna group quickly advanced over the border. However, they did not go far. This short movement was all that was planned, and it was not due to resistance, which was mostly non-existent. If this group advanced too far out of the mountains, they risked being cut off since they were separated from the rest of the First Army. To their east, the Gio group went through two passes and reached the Hungarian town of Prečasini. This city would be the center of the fighting for the next few weeks, as units from both sides lodged attacks and counterattacks, with the area changing hands several times. The final group was the Old group, and they advanced all the way to the town of Sibiu. Once they reached the city, they did not, however, take it. This is remarkable because when the Romanians were advancing, the Austrian commander decided not to defend the city. The Austro-Hungarian officials did not want to subject the city to street fighting since it was a historical city, and also because they probably would have just lost the fight anyway. Because of these two facts, they evacuated the area completely. All of the soldiers and governmental personnel would be gone before the Hungarians arrived. When they did arrive, all that were left were some logistics troops, trying to load the last of their supplies onto wagons for transit. The Romanians could have easily walked into town, but they didn't. The local commander did not want to enter the city without permission, fearing that he and his men would possibly get tied down by resistance, even though it did not appear that it would be present. So instead of just walking in, he kicked it up the chain of command and asked for permission, which was then granted. But then due to some kind of miscommunication or misunderstanding, this permission never reached the front. For a week, the Austrians just hung out on the other side of the city, being in general quite amazed that the Romanians were just sitting on their side of the city, instead of occupying it. The reaction from the people inside Transylvania as the Romanians invaded was a tale of two different groups. On one side you have the ethnic Hungarians who feared retribution from the local Romanians and the army. This fear caused hundreds of thousands of them to become refugees as they tried to stay ahead of the advancing army. These fears would prove to be mostly unfounded because many Hungarians found that life under Romanian rule was not drastically different than life before the war. On the other side of the coin was the ethnic Romanians, and for them there was nothing but happiness. At every Romanian town and village that the army arrived in, they were greeted as conquering heroes. The people gave them food, they helped guide units through the areas, gave them intelligence on the Austrians, and men from these areas even helped the soldiers build fortifications. There was also not an insignificant number of citizens of the empire who had fled to Romania in 1914 to prevent being drafted into the Austro-Hungarian army. These men, often coming back in the Romanian army, it felt like a homecoming to them. There was also a concerted effort put into trying to get those Romanians who had joined the Austro-Hungarian army to desert to come over to the other side with their countrymen. Overall, the advance into Transylvania was seen as a great success all around. However, now that Romania had made their move, it was time for the German and Austrian response. But for that, we have to start back at their reactions when Romania entered the war. Neither the Germans or Austrians were completely taken by surprise when the Romanians entered the war. They knew that they had been negotiating with the Entente and had known this fact for months, This was all due to the weaknesses of the Italian diplomatic encryption, which was being used by Romania to communicate with Britain and France. There were also reports by German agents in Bucharest that pointed towards war. The Germans knew about the fact that the Romanian army had cancelled all officer furloughs after August 4th. All army harvest furloughs had also been cancelled. This canceled the annual leave for soldiers who were sent back home to help with the harvest, a practice of almost all European armies before the war. They also knew that Bratianu wanted to bring Romania into the war. So how did they know all of these things and still think that Romania would not come into the war in August 1916? Well, they believed that the Romanian king, now Ferdinand, after his father had died, would ultimately prevent their entry against the Germans. He was of the same lineage as the Kaiser, and they believed that family loyalties would cause him to overrule any attempt to bring the Romanians into a policy of war against the Germans. This caused people like Falkenhayn to ignore all the evidence, so when news reached Berlin at 10.30pm on August 27th that Romania had declared war, there was an initial feeling of shock, however they recovered quickly. One reaction to all of the evidence of Romania possibly entering the war was the creation of a plan between the Germans, Austrians, Bulgarians, and Ottomans on what to do in case they did. All of them would meet in Budapest on August 3rd to discuss this plan. In attendance were Conrad Falkenhayn, the operational chief of the Bulgarian army, and Inver Pasha, the Turkish war minister. The strategy that was devised was predicated on the fact that the opening invasion of Transylvania by the Romanian army could not be prevented. With that fact in mind, the strategy revolved about how to react to it. The first part was that the troops in Transylvania should offer as much resistance as possible until reinforced. However, they had to make sure that they did not get completely destroyed. That would leave gaping holes in the line, so they just had to fight a retreat. In the south, the Bulgarians would very quickly launch an attack into Dobrugia. For this task, they would receive Turkish and German reinforcements. Finally, there would be a crossing of the Danube into Wallachia at the same time as the counterattack in Transylvania that would be launched. This would be the plan of action, and would be precisely what would end up happening. In July, preparations had begun with the reinforcements of the Austrian border guards, which up to that point had been the only people on the border. At first, this was just some battalions of militia, but in August, they were reinforced by three divisions from the Eastern Front. These divisions were exhausted and beaten up, but it was hoped they would have time to organize and rest up before anything happened, which they would not. All of these troops were put under the command of General von Strassenberg, and when the attack came, he had precisely 15 weakened battalions of infantry, 4 cavalry regiments, and 13 artillery batteries. This was all he had to defend a front of 600 kilometers. The key to the entire plan, though, was in the south, and it was there that the best chance of a quick strike against the Romanians existed because of the Bulgarian army. They had agreed to be put under the command of Mackensen, who had led the combined armies so well in Serbia, and since that time he had been in the Balkans. He would initially have three and a half Bulgarian divisions, about half a German division, and then two Turkish divisions of dubious value. There were many more troops on the Macedonian front, facing the Entente troops at Salonika, but initially all the troops there were needed there. To free some of them up, Mackensen launched an attack on the Macedonian front to shorten the lines, and this attack was launched on August 17th, and resulted in some pretty good success. In just a bit over a week, several areas were captured, and the first train of Bulgarian troops bound for Romania was already on a train north on August 22nd, which, as you know, is five days before war started. Mackinson had put the planning for the attack against Romania in the hands of Colonel Hinch. His plan was to attack as soon as possible into the De with the goal of capturing two places on the Danube. This would allow for more troops on the Danube and greatly increase the threat to Bucharest, which wasn't that far away. It was assumed that this would cause some sort of reaction from the Romanians, although they had no way of knowing the panic that it would result in, which we will discuss next week. These plans would begin shortly after the Romanian declaration of war, and it would take some time to get going, but by September, there were 22 trains per day arriving in Transylvania, with 1,500 arriving in all. They would transfer divisions from all over Europe, and in total 30 infantry and 3.5 cavalry divisions would find their way into Transylvania to prepare for the counterattack. Falkenhayn, recently dismissed as chief of staff, would be put in command of the 9th Army. He had many negative qualities as a leader, but one thing that could not be questioned in this case was his motivation. He was driven by the desire to prove himself, and he would. The German troops that were sent from the Western Front felt like they had entered an entirely different war. Gone were the endless seas of mud and shell holes. The Alpine Meadows must have seemed like a dream come true. Unfortunately for the soldiers, though, they would not be on a sightseeing journey, and soon they would be unleashed which we will discuss next episode.